Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen Henson, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Wagdon. What up, everybody? What up, what everybody? Up, what up, everybody? Nathan, what have you been reading these days? Ooh, now that's a good question. Uh, two books, actually. One of them is called Unfinished Agenda, which is an autobiography by a guy named Leslie Newbingen, mm-hmm. which is super fascinating. I've really been enjoying that one. He was kind of a father of like modern missiology. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, then check that book out. And then I've also, I'm almost done actually with Mark Knoll's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which will kind of blow your socks off. So... It'll blow your mind. It will blow your mind in a good way to understand what factors have shaped the way evangelicals think and what we care about and whether that's good or bad. So it's been really interesting. Yeah. No. Do you want to ask me what I'm reading? What are you reading, Karen? Thanks for asking. I'm really glad that you asked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you're wondering, I'm reading Harry Potter. Nice. So pretty much on the same scale as Nathan. (laughs) Have you read the Harry Potter books? I have. This would be my second or third time through and just as good. Okay, sweet. Ask me how many uh, Harry Potter books I've read. Probably zero, so I don't want to talk to you about it. That is correct. I've read zero Harry Potter books. Boo. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to be talking to Mike Kaiser, who is the author of The Unseen Realm. We hope you all enjoy this conversation. We're back this week with Dr. Mike Kaiser from the Awakening School of Theology and Ministry at Celebration Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, he is a Hebrew and Semitic studies expert. If you if you listened to the podcast last week, which I if you haven't, then you need to go back and listen to that. But if you listen to it, then you know that uh, he's spent a lot of time and work in kind of the Hebrew mindset, ancient Near Eastern history, the worldview of the people who were the people of the Bible, and so we're excited to have him back this week. Mike, thanks for joining us, man. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. So we finished our conversation last week introducing this idea of this heavenly council. We talked a mm-hmm. lot about worldview, which is really critical. Mm-hmm. But then talking about these various Elohim that are in the unseen realm and that Yahweh is species unique, I think is the word you use. Yeah. Yahweh is an Elohim. There's lots of Elohim. Yahweh is one of them, but none of them are him. Right, exactly. So in that sense, we're not saying that there are a bunch of gods out there that are like Yahweh. There's only one of those, but yep. there are other Elohim. There are other lesser gods, so to speak. Yes, we don't need to let the details of the biblical text scare us away from our theology. Yeah, good, good, yeah. <laughs> no, really, there, there's plural Elohim in Psalm 82 and other passages, but we still affirm one unique God in three persons. Look, that shouldn't scare you. It, at the end of the day, like, that invites you in to deeper reality than you ordinarily would experience if your worldview is such that it inhibits your ability to see what's actually going on. So uh, let's just start. It's kind of funny that Genesis starts in the beginning. (laughs) You know, God (laughs) created the heavens and the earth. And so let's just, let's start there. What is going on in Genesis 1, especially there in verse 26? Let us make man in our image and then lay the groundwork for us in regard to um, why is it so critical for us to understand the creation account, what God is doing with Eden, 
and how the ancient Near Eastern cosmic geography, which is a term we'll, don't be afraid of that, we'll, we'll unpack mm-hmm. it. Why is it so critical for us to understand that in order to understand what's going on in the narrative of scripture? Yeah. Well, you know, Genesis obviously, you know, is going to deal with, with creation, Genesis one and two. And that actually isn't where the story begins. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> if you go to Job 38, there we have the the sons of God, mm-hmm. the stars of God, bearing witness to God's creating the foundations, you know, of the world. This is obviously that language is is drawn from Genesis. It's prior to human creation. Mm-hmm. You know, God has witnesses to what He's doing in Genesis one, and those witnesses are His kids. You know, God already had a family before He creates humans. You know, He has these spiritual beings, and God decided, you know. Just as I created you guys and you image me, you represent me, you you are my family and my partners in doing the things that I want done in the spiritual world, in the realm in which we live, I want to do this again. But I'm going to create something a little bit different. They're going to be like us, okay? Mm. But they're going to be embodied. And to pull that off, I need to create a world that is habitable for them. They can't live in this world because they're embodied. They're going to be. And so I'm going to create this world. Watch. And he does. And we get that, you know, in in Genesis 1, the ordering of of what will be the place that humans know and experience and and can live in, you know, the habitable earth. You know, when it comes to, to human creation, you know, we get to Genesis 1, 26. You know, God says, let us create humankind in our image as our, our image, as our likeness, this language that typically, you know, we think, oh, that's the Trinity. God's not speaking to the heavenly host. Those are the members of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if, if, if that was the only passage that had that language, I think you could probably get away with that and mm-hmm. live with it. But you have a problem. you got several problems, actually. You know, if God is having a conversation with the other members of the Trinity, they don't need the information. Mm-hmm. They already know because they're co-eternal and co-omniscient. Mm. If you go over to Genesis 11, just read it carefully. And the Lord, this is the Tower of Babel story, the Lord, Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower mm. that the children of men had built. So Yahweh comes down to watch, to see. And then in verse 7, Yahweh says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. No, no wait a minute. I, if Yahweh was already down, that means the members of the Trinity are down yeah. because they're him. They're, you know, they're, there's a unity there. Mm. So he must be talking to somebody else. Mm. And it's the same verbiage as back in Genesis 1. You know, what you really have is God is announcing something to his heavenly host. And it doesn't mean that they participate in our creation because Genesis 1, 26, hey, let's do this. And then when it, when it actually gets done in verse 27, the language switches back to singular. So God created yeah, yeah, the yeah. male and female. Yeah. He created them. The text is very clear. But you have this weird switch between the plural and the singular, you know, the fancy, you know, grammatical understanding of this. This is a plural of exhortation, the, mm. the co- a cohortative plural. Mm. Doesn't that sound impressive? Yeah, I love you know, that. What, what it means <laughs> is that is that you have one being. It's like if I walk into a room, I'm, I'm one person, and I say to everybody in the room, hey, let us go get pizza. Mm-hmm. But we go in my car. Yeah. I pay. Yeah. I choose what kind of pizza we're going to have, <laughs> yeah, but right. I let you eat. Yeah. 
Okay, that's what's going on. It's a plural of exhortation that comes from one being to a group. Yeah. And somehow humans that result from this are like God and they're like these other guys too. So how is that? Again, to, you know, to cut to the chase here, I discuss, I spent a lot of time on this in Unseen Realm. You really have to understand what the image of God is. The image of God is not a quality put into yeah, humans. Good, good. And that's really, really important. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's important not only for theology, but it's important for ethics. Because if you link the image to any quality, then you've got some serious problems. Yeah, so, get, so give us an example of that. I, I used to love abortion day when I taught ethics because I would go in, you know, with this, this plan in mind. You know, I would say, hey, you know, we're at a Christian college. You know, how many of you are, you know, against abortion? Pro Every, of course, everybody raises their hand. Yeah, I said, right. why? Why? And sooner or later, somebody's going to, well, human life is sacred. So, okay, why? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's because of the, the Genesis, the image of God. And I said, okay, well, what is that? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I'd get the grocery list. I mean, this is what I've been angling oh, yeah. for, playing dumb the whole time. You yeah, know? for sure. You know, well, it's, it's reason, it's yeah. intelligence, it's yeah. rationality, it's self-awareness. Immaterial it's type things. Communicate, you know, yeah. all this stuff. I said, Oh, all those things that come from brain function, right? Mm. And then a few people would go, oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> He's baited us. Right, because I got news for you. <laughs> the conceptus in the womb that's like two or three or four cells big, it ain't thinking. Yeah, right. It's not praying. It's not doing any of this stuff. Yep. And then somebody would say, well, it, you know, come on, Mike, it will. All those things are, are part of, of what that thing is in the womb. And I'd say, you're, you're correct, but congratulations. You've just given me a biblical argument to abort before those things manifest. Yeah, before they start functioning. Yep. Right. That's what you've done for me. You've, you've given me a biblical definition of life becoming sacred at some chronological point after conception. Yep. The image is not a quality. It's not a qualitative thing. Rather, it's, it's a functional thing. It's yeah, a good. status. Yep. I mean, we use the word in in English, you know, in, in this way too. For instance, if I say put the dishes in the sink, in denotes location, mm -hmm. okay, in the sink. If I say I broke the vase in pieces, it connotes some kind of result. Mm -hmm. If I say I wrote the letter in pencil, now we have some sort of instrumentality. Yep. But if I say I work in medicine, I work in accounting. I work in ministry, in education. What do I mean? It means I work as some specific role. Yeah. You perform a certain function. I perform a certain function. And that is what the image of God really is. Mm. And what's our function? Our function is to be God's proxy yeah, on this earth. We are God's representatives. And the reason why we're looped in and the heavenly host is looped in is because that's what they are too. Mm. They are God's proxies, his assistants, his agents, you know, whatever, whatever word you want you know, is, is going to help here. That's what they do in the spiritual world, the world of the disembodied. And we get that unique status of all created things on this planet. Yeah. That's who we are. We become the material proxies in the exactly. material world. And to help us do the job, because God gives them a job, be fruitful yeah. and multiply I want to make the rest of the world like Eden. You know, Eden has specific geography. All the world is not Eden. Yeah. It's under restraint. We understand that. But now they have to go out and subdue it, you know, rule it, start having babies. It's a big place. You know, it's going to be Yeah, which is an interesting point. I mean, you said this in your book a couple different times, but it's like, hey, God didn't just 
automatically like snap his fingers and have everything totally complete. This is an ongoing act of creation whereby he uses us as instruments. There is that working on his behalf. Yeah, God doesn't need a counsel. I right. mean, divine counsel is a biblical term, you know, heavenly host. You know, he, he has a family, there's a family relationship, and, and there's a partnering relationship. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, ultimately, that's what God wants from us. He wants kids. He wants us to be with him in his home. Mm-hmm. And he wants partners. Yeah, I think, too, it's, his home is not something that's fully complete yet. Like, nope. it's this ongoing thing. So we have this heavenly council. We have God going, hey, I don't need you, but I want you. And I want you to co-labor with me in this. Let's make this in our image in a material world. And you'll enjoy it and I will enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, totally. But then something goes wrong. <laughs> and yep. we don't know exactly what happened or how it happened. Or, I mean, I remember uh, one of my OT profs in seminary one time was just like, we don't know schmots about this. <laughs> That's kind of was his, <laughs> his statement. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot we don't know about it. But talk to us about like the fact that the story of salvation or the story of reality really doesn't start with man in the garden. The drama has already been unfolding prior to the creation of mankind. So what do we know about the rebellion? What do we know about the Satan? The plurality of the rebellion is, and the plurality of the imaging is important because God equips us with his attributes. He shares his attributes with us to image him, and he shared his attributes with them, you know, the members of the heavenly host, to image him you know, in their world. And one of those attributes is freedom. And so God already knows that at some point there's going to be a failure. There's going to be a rebellion because even though these beings are all like me, they aren't me. Hmm. Okay, they, they lack my, my perfection, my perfect nature. And so that becomes a backdrop. I mean, there, we already know there's something brewing because as soon as, you know, everybody knows the program. God's announced the program. They watch the creation. I mean, everybody knows the program. Yeah. And so you, the, the idea of handing this world to these humans, these lesser beings, and they're lesser because they're embodied. Mm-hmm. You know, Psalm 8, you know, a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the Elohim, actually, in Hebrew. And again, we have this sort of lower status because we don't have exactly the same, you know, ontological makeup, even though we have the same status and the same attributes. There's a shortcoming there. And so the notion that Yahweh would put us on equal footing is offensive, at least to one mm-hmm. member of the heavenly host. Mm-hmm. And so the the objective is clear. Well, this is really simple. You know, he's put these humans in the garden, which is his home. And so he's given them a a pretty simple rule. If I can get them to violate the rule, God will destroy them. Hmm. Problem solved. Yeah. I mean, there's no anticipation that God wouldn't do that. We know what happens, but again, it it doesn't begin, you know, with, with humans, you know, it's just sort of, you know, bumping along here. And then, you know, where in the world does this come from? Well, there's a deceiver. There's, there's a supernatural rebel. As soon as, you know, we're not, we're not told when, you know, we, we get this, the first rebel in the council emerges. Mm -hmm. He's he's not called Satan in Genesis three. It's, you know, serpent, Nakash, you know, there's different ways to understand that term too. But we're not told exactly when we're not given a chronology, but as soon as, as he decides that, you know what, I want to be the one 
who dictates destiny here. I want to be the one who calls the shots. That's really what the scriptural, you know, phrasing like in Isaiah 14 means I will be like the most high. I want to be the one in control. It's a hunger for autonomy, which is really the root of all sin. And so, you know, we, we have this happen. It's conceived, you know, we know the story and it results in two things. Fundamentally, it results in the loss of immortality for humans because they're expelled from the presence of God, you know, Eden, the tree of life, all these things, you know, refer to the fact that God is the source of life. Mm. He sustains all things. So they're divorced from that. So there's a loss of immortality and then there's an estrangement. The relationship is altered negatively, you know, between humans and God. And so that has to be rectified. But again, theodicy, we mentioned last time, you know, the, the whole free will, you know, theodicy thing factors into the whole divine council, heavenly host worldview. But also why the world is in such a mess, because at this point, you know, we have Genesis 3, and and I I like to introduce it this way. If you ask the average Christian, hey, you know, why is the world such a mess? You know, why do we have all this evil and sin? They would say, oh, it's the fall. Hmm. Okay, if you ask the same question, again, to a literate Israelite or a first century Jew, you know, who knows the scriptures and, you know, knows what's going on here, that is not the answer you would get. Yeah. Do we realize that the Old Testament never references, in its numerous discussions of sin, it never references Genesis 3? Mm, interesting. You know, it, which is a curious omission. Yeah. An Israelite or a first century Jew would say, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is so awful. You know, it got started in, in Eden, you know, with the, the, the serpent and the rebellion there, supernatural rebel and human rebellion, certainly. You know, Adam and Eve, though they don't get off the hook, they, they willfully chose to do this. But then we've got a problem with Genesis 6, not just 1 through 4, but Genesis 6, 1 through 5. And, we, you know, we could talk about that. But the, the key there, we don't, we don't really have to drill down too far into it to realize that there's an important issue here. The first four verses are the weird stuff. You know, sons of God, yeah, Nephilim, Nephilim. everybody yeah. likes to park there. Okay. But have you ever asked yourself the question, well, how do we go from the sons of God and the Nephilim to verse five, where God looks at humans, humanity, and says that every thought of the imagination of their heart is only evil continually. Mm-hmm. How do the first four verses lead to that? Yeah. And that is a question that you can't answer unless you know the backstory. But that's the second rebellion. Yeah. That leads to the proliferation of depravity uh, on earth. And then the third problem is what happens at Babel, you know, when the nations are forsaken, divorced, you know, by God, divided up and assigned to other sons of God, lesser Elohim. And I'm, that's Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. You're not going to get that in Genesis 11. Mm. But Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, which I didn't discover until I was a doctoral student, until after my Psalm 82 provocation. So I ran into that passage and had the same thought, how in the world could I have never seen this before? Mm. You know, when the Most High divided up the nations, when he set the boundaries of the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. That's reading that passage with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which the ESV does, NRSV does, NLT does. I mean, you have English translations that have that have realized that the, the Dead Sea Scroll reading ought to be there. Yeah. And, and they put it in. And, you know, scholars knew it from the Septuagint. Dead Sea Scrolls were the first Hebrew evidence for it. So that, that blows the whole thing up. Mm. So God is divorced from humanity. Now we've got nations set under lesser Elohim, lesser gods, and God still wants the nations Mm. because they're his imagers. He still cares. You know, how do we know that? Because the very next thing that happens after Babel is God says, okay, I'm going to start Eden over this, try to recover this program. There is no plan B. There's only plan A. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, hey, I, I see this guy, Abraham, He's Abram good. and his wife, Sarah, and, and man, she's perfect because she can't have kids. Yeah. Everyone is going to know. Yeah, that's good. That they were supernaturally enabled to raise up a new Adam, a new mm -hmm. humankind. Mm -hmm. I have a new people. And that's what Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, when the Most High divides the vote, puts, you know, according to the number of the sons of God, the next verse says, Israel is Yahweh's portion. Mm -hmm. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And so God starts over and he makes a covenant with Abraham and says, you know, all those nations that I just divorced, it's through your seed that they're going to come back. Yeah. Good. Okay, we, we have not forgotten about them. Mm -hmm. And in Psalm 82, the, the plural Elohim that are being judged and ripped on by God in a council meeting are the ones that are over the nations they, because they sow chaos in their nations. Yeah. They enslave and destroy the people under their charge. How do we know it's them? Because the, the way the psalm ends, the psalmist in the last verse, verse 8, interjects and, and says, rise up, O God, and take back the nations. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a coherent worldview. This is why the world is a mess. And if you believe this as an Israelite or a first century Jew, you know what else you believe? You believe that the Messiah is supposed to fix all three problems. Yeah, right. He's supposed to reverse all three rebellions. And the way that the work of Jesus plays out, it does do that. Mm, yeah. In explicit detail, it does do that. Yeah. It's good. I, I think it's interesting that when Yahweh creates mankind and puts them in the Garden of Eden, which is in the east, which is really interesting, mm -hmm. they're in this location and they're supposed to cultivate that to where Eden begins to spread yep. into these other yep. competing territories where you have almost like Eden locale and then as Adam and Eve procreate and raise up other image bearers who are, like we said, proxies yeah. or images that are acting on Yahweh's behalf to cultivate Eden, then Eden grows. We and grow the sudden, family. Yeah. All of a sudden Eden gets bigger yep. and then it, Eden gets bigger and then Eden gets bigger until Adam and Eve are like, well, no, we, we want to be autonomous. We want to follow the way of uh, the deceiver. <laughs> and, and Yahweh is like, okay, well, you can do that because you're free to do that. It's not going to go well for you, but you've now become, your functionality has become distorted. And so yeah. I'm going to have to like push you out of the garden. I think this is what's so interesting about Babel as well is that Babel, instead of being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth, mm -hmm. instead of filling the earth, they're coming together in one place, Right. Yeah. And, and Yahweh yeah. is going, wait a minute, no. <laughs> You're so All of it is a series of, of mirror reversals. Yep. You know, yep. Even even like you said to the East, well, if, if you're a biblical writer, if, if you're standing in Canaan, okay, the East is, you know, just draw a line. It's Babel. Yeah. You know, it goes to Mesopotamia because Kadem can mean in front of you. It can mean to the East. It can also mean in, in olden times. Mm. And all these things converge, you know, in, in Mesopotamia. And, you know, I didn't get into this in Unseen Realm, but I, I'm becoming convinced, especially if, if you, in regard to Isaiah uh, 14 and Genesis 3, you know, I'm, I'm still locked into sort of a Canaanite mode for Ezekiel 28. But there, there's some really good data that suggest that uh, Isaiah 14 is playing off a council rebellion theme that comes mm. from Babylon. Mm. And, and if that's the case, and if that loops into Genesis 3 more than the other, I mean, look, look at what you got. Yeah, You know, Babylon, Babel is the ground zero metaphor for everything that is anti-Eden. 
Right. It is the opposite of what God wants. Yep. It is the lead metaphor in Scripture for chaos and anti-Eden. Yep. Dysfunction, and, and you, chaos, yep. you hook uncreation. Into it from the very beginning. Yep. And and the, and it just plays, you know, it's honestly, it's spiritual warfare. Yep. You know, when, yep. when you really get down to it, you, you know, you, you have all these things going on under the surface of events that hook back into this conflict between Eden and anti-Eden. Mm. And it runs through the entirety of the rest of Scripture. It's really kind of remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it, really it really is. I mean, it, on the surface, we can see it at the end of the book of Revelation. There's a reason why it's a global Eden. Yeah. You know, God doesn't have a plan B. He's going to work the plan and he's going to get his way. Yep. You know, and he can get his way with free will beings. He totally. doesn't need to predestinate everything and pretend that it was tough. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So talk to us about, speaking of the unseen realm, you have these visions. You know, Daniel is a really interesting book. Part of its narrative and the other parts of it has a strong apocalyptic genre there in the middle of the book. But he has this vision in Daniel 7 of this, like you said last week, there's this second deity or this divine figure who approaches the Ancient of Days. So talk to us about mm-hmm. who is that and what's that yeah. being's role and how does that end up playing out? That specifically is the Son of Man figure. You know, you actually... Uh, in Unseen Realm, I spend three chapters on essentially God as man in the Old Testament. Mm, yeah. You know, we we associate this kind of talk with Jesus, but it has a really long and deep history. You know, when, when God is, even with Abraham, as soon as God, again, divorces the nations at Babel, he makes a covenant with Abraham to redeem the nations and again, begin to to use them to reverse all of these rebellions and all of all of the cost to humanity and to the ruination of Eden. You know, he comes to Abraham as the word. You know, and if you read these passages, there's anthropomorphic language that God is coming to Abraham as a man. Mm-hmm. One of those figures, you know, eventually it gets called the angel. You know, uh, yep. you have the angel, you have the word, you have the name. The name theology is a big deal in yep. the Old Testament. But God is man. But it's God embodied. Yes, it yes. is. I mean, some of these instances are tactile. You know, if you go to Jeremiah 1, where the, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, and he refers to the, to the word of the Lord. There, there's the phrase, the word of the Lord as Yahweh. And in the scene, you know, the word of the Lord reaches out his hand yeah. and touches yeah, yeah. the mouth of the yeah. prophet. Yeah, you know, good. I mean, there's just a lot of yeah. just really cool stuff going on. But the one that, that's sort of the easiest connection is, you know, the son of man in, in Daniel Daniel 7, because again, you have a divine council meeting in in Daniel 7, and it starts out with this vision of the four beasts. And it says in verse 9, you know, hey, well, we need need to have a meeting, you know, about what's going to happen with these four beasts, you know, these these four empires that we find in chapter 10 are under the authority of spiritual beings, Mm -hmm. you know, a la Deuteronomy 32. You know, and, and Daniel says, as I look, thrones, plural, were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So the Ancient of Days is sitting down. We know who that is. It's God. It's not a brain teaser. His clothing's white as snow, hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. It's right out of Ezekiel 1. Yeah, right. And then verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court Mm. council Mm. sat in judgment and the books were opened. And, And then you have this figure one like a son of man, a human one, come to the ancient of days. So they're clearly different figures. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the description of coming upon the clouds is the big deal. 
That was, in the ancient world, a stock description, a stock epithet for Baal. Mm. And in fact, Daniel 7 actually mimes, in terms of the order of, of elements, it actually mimes a divine, divine council scene in the Baal cycle. I think they did that to make it unmistakable, yeah. you know, make the identity of the Son of Man unmistakable, because this phrase, the one who rides in the clouds, the one who comes in the clouds, it's used five times in the Old Testament. There are four that refer to, the, to Yahweh. Okay, it's the God of Israel. The only exception is this one. And so everywhere else, this description is applied only to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. But here, the God, you know, God of heaven, the God of Israel is seated already. And the Son of Man is different. He's a human one who yeah, bears yeah, yeah. the epithet of the one who rides the clouds. Everybody mm -hmm. knows that this is a second deity figure. Yeah. I mean, the kicker is when Jesus is on trial in front of Caiaphas and Caiaphas says, you know, come on, tell us who you are. And Jesus quotes this passage. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's a total mic you know, drop moment. And, You're just right. like, <laughs> and, and yeah, we, look, yeah, yeah. we look at it like, ah, oh, Jesus is trying to be clever or he's cryptic. No, no, he's giving him both barrels. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and we know yeah, that's, that's what awesome. he's doing because of Caiaphas's reaction. Yeah. What does he say? Yeah. He, tears he says, this is blasphemy. Yeah, tears we don't need clothes. any more witnesses. We don't, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you very much. You know, you're going to, we're going to put you to you death. You just now. condemned yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he knows instantly that Jesus is claiming to be God as man yeah. in the Old Testament. You know? Well, that's what's so crazy, man, as you have this son of man figure. And I, I think just given the whole like second Yahweh tradition in Judaism, I think John 1, 1 would not have bothered anybody. No, like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And they're like, of course, right. Yay. Right. The problem they have is verse 14. Yeah. That this yeah. word became that was the, became flesh that was the offense <laughs> and that and that's that's where it's like well daggum man i mean uh, and that's the reality of christianity is that i mean central to what we believe and who we are is that this divine word this second yahweh literally became a man he lived in palestine yeah. 2000 years ago yeah i don't i don't know how much of this you've covered with your audience but your audience needs to realize that, that this used to be taught in judaism mm. the idea of two powers yeah. two good guys two yeah. yahweh figures in heaven and they got it from their old testament the mm. idea was that that yahweh is is invisible and transcendent and up in the heavens but yahweh is also he also comes as a man. Yep. Visible, and, embodied. Right, and he's visible. And, yep. it, and it's not like when he's on earth and he's not in heaven. Right. Because in some of the scenes in the Old Testament, they're both in the same scene. I know, right? That's crazy. <laughs> you know, so you, so you got both. I mean, the, the rabbinical community, I mean, they knew their, their scriptures. They, they know this stuff is there. And so they used to have, Judaism used to have a doctrine called, mm. this is what they, this is, wasn't my term for it, but they called it the two powers, two powers. in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Daniel 7 was a, a huge text, but yeah, it, you go from the Old Testament to the New, you got these four or 500 years in between. Jewish writers during that period, the Second Temple period, they are writing about who the second power is. And mm. I mean, there's reams of, of material yeah. within the, the Jewish community discussing this. There was nothing wrong with it. It was okay. No. It was yeah. legit. Yeah. But then when Christians come along and say, oh, well, we have a different candidate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's hey, this guy this second power. to crucify. Yeah, right, right. The second power, the second Yahweh. Oh, by the way, you nailed him to a tree. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea of that the second Yahweh would, would be born of a woman, yeah. like, you, like you said earlier, yep. that was... That was a no-go in their understanding of it. Yeah. yeah, It's different to say that Yahweh comes in the form of a man in yeah. the Old Testament, even when he, he can touch people. Mm -hmm. That's different than saying he passed through the birth canal. Yeah, he is a man. You know, yeah. Yeah, that, 
that was That's that was a little right. much, you know. So tell the, us why is that, and what what does the Christ event do for it? We're, well, let's kind of transition to kind of the so what of all of this. Jesus comes, the Christ event happens, and by that I mean the Christ event is his life, his death, his resurrection. Kind of yeah. all of it is considered the Christ event. So what hinges there? Why is that so critical in what we've been talking about and kind of the meta narrative yeah, of this? It is the linchpin event because it is the reversal of all that is wrong, mm. all that was lost. So most of your audience and most Christians are going to be familiar with, well, Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. And so he conquered death and we're going to conquer death because we're in Christ. And and all that's true. Yep. You know, the what he does fixes the Genesis 3 problem. It brings us to God. It reconciles us to God we defeat death. Okay. So it, it takes care of that. But well, there's just a lot more going on to it than that because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of hard to know what, where to pick and choose here, but you can't have, you can't have a resurrection without a death. Mm-hmm. The death is essential and, and you can't die unless you're a man. Mm-hmm. The incarnation is essential. The incarnation is also essential for another reason, because God, again, trying to kickstart this whole Edenic thing that was ruined, has been making covenants with people, yep. with Israel. And people, guess what? Screw up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, regularly, without yeah. fail. Right. The only thing they do without fail is screw up. I know, you know? right? <laughs> so, <laughs> the only so thing God you do perfectly is be imperfect. <laughs> right. So God, God can't look at this and go, oh, good grief, I should have known this. You know, why did I do this? Why did I hook all these promises to these idiots? You yeah, know, yeah. he can't just change the rules. So the only way that, that the covenants who are made with men can possibly be fulfilled is what? God has to become yeah, a man. Yeah. It's the incarnation again. And so, you know, we can understand that with Genesis 3, but, you know, the, the, the depravity problem with Genesis 6, again, and this is ubiquitous in Jewish, you know, thinking. Well, what's that? You know, how does that? fix, you know, well, Jesus said a number of times, maybe a dozen times, he said, now look, fellas, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go back you know, to, to heaven. I'm going to ascend to the father. And when I do that, the spirit mm-hmm. is going to mm, good. Yeah. And it's the spirit who indwells all believers. This is the new covenant. The spirit who indwells all believers mm. is the agent through which and by which depravity can be combated. And dealt with. You know, it's interesting. I think so. You have in the Genesis account, the beginning of Genesis 2, where the Lord fashions man out of the dust of the ground. You know, he raises him up, fashions him out of dirt, basically mud, clay, whatever, and then breathes into him this life. This, he's animated. Um, mm-hmm. Which there's so many, there's a really interesting parallels between that and stuff that goes on in Egypt and Mesopotamia and the ancient Near East. But but then it, when Jesus does this at the end of John, he <laughs> after he resurrects, he he's among his disciples, and probably a lot of you guys have have read this and been like, what is going on? You know, because Jesus goes and he breathes on them. I mean, he literally is just like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, but he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's this, a new man. Yeah, it's this Yahweh, Yahweh is yeah. reanimating these images that have been distorted and, and are now dysfunctioning. Mm-hmm. And now he's going, now, now you man. can function the yeah. way you were supposed to. Yeah. And then the Eden Project pushes forward, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really fascinating. You know, and, and then why does Paul, in half a dozen passages, maybe maybe a couple more, 
when he's talking about the resurrection, you know, when we talk about the resurrection, oh, I get a new body, I'll be at my ideal weight, you know, I'll get hair back. Or, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Like it's all this physical stuff. Yeah. You know, when, when Paul talks about it, half a dozen times, he links it to the defeat, the nullification of the authority mm. of the sons of God over the nations, yeah. the principalities, powers, and rulers. Why? It's because the, the, the same Most High that judged humanity and gave them that position, although they ruined it, mm. you know, they, they became corrupt. He has now withdrawn their authority because yeah. he has come as a man and he died and he rose again. And now he removes all their status, all the authority they had. You can find this in Plato, for goodness sake, yeah. that the Gentiles believe the same thing, the same Deuteronomy 32 worldview that we worship the gods we worship because the bigger gods say that's the ones we should worship. You know, And it'll have the allotment language. We're allotted to this God and they're allotted to that one. And so Paul goes into a city and he knows the people believe this. And he goes, yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, our scriptures teach the same thing, but with a few differences. You know, <laughs> yeah. well, and they're you know, critical. He even alludes to it in <laughs> Acts 17, you know, that, that yeah. this something has something to do with, with the messianic plan, which is really bizarre unless you know what in the world he's talking about. Yeah. But, he, you know, he can go to a Gentile and say, look, I'm here to tell you that the most high God mm-hmm. became a man. Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. He has removed the authority of these other gods. Mm-hmm. So I know you're scared. That if you forsake your gods, they're going to be after you. Mm. There's going to be, you know, literally hell to pay. Don't worry about it. The most high is on your side. And not only has he stripped them of their authority, not only does he he want you to come back to the true God, the most high, but he insists on it. Yeah. There's great language in in Colossians about this, where he's like, he's disarmed them. And not only disarmed them, but he's put them to Public open shame. shame. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy it's stuff. But again, we can read that and get a little feel for it, but you can't really get the impact of it unless you know the worldview. Yeah, good. But we have people who are in churches that, that love scripture and they have lots of Bible under their belt. They have mm-hmm. lots of data points, but unfortunately they don't have a place to put them. Yeah. They don't have a worldview framework. They yeah. don't have any, they don't have a place to hang, hang this stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so like an unseen realm, you know what I, you know, and I say it in the intro, look, the unseen realm is not a theory of everything. Okay. It's a starting point. It's not the end point. It's mm-hmm. a starting point. But mm-hmm. I, what I can do is I can, you know, build the matrix for you. I, I can give you the framework. And if you have this in your head, you will be able to see the interconnectivity mm-hmm. Of lots of things. And the weird passages will start to make sense. They all have a role to play. They're not random. This is intelligently put together. It constantly plays off. Passages play off each other. When a biblical writer says something and he uses vocabulary that is found in some other passage, the chances are really high especially if it's the Old Testament, New Testament, you're doing something with the Old Testament. Yeah. The chances are really high that the author wants you to go back and look at that. Yeah, totally. Especially if you don't understand the foundation on which all of it's based. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's not just pointing back to, hey, go read this verse. He's alluding to a much broader story that that verse fits into, yep. you know. Yep. 
you went from here and now you're over here. Yep. You know, what does this hook into? Yep. And then what does that hook into? Right. And, and when you cluster those things, are there other clusters like yeah, that? Yeah, and it all forms this mosaic. I, I use that word a lot. It's just like, hey, yep. don't just look at this one rock. You know, it fits in with thousands of other ones that paints this picture. Yeah. So what's the so what on all this, man? I mean, if, now I, would, I just want you to kind of close our time talking mm-hmm. to that person who is doing the best they can to read the scriptures, know the scriptures, apply the scriptures, and they're sitting there going, okay, man, like, yeah, awesome, all this stuff, but, you know, what's the so what? Why does it matter for us today? Well, I guess I'd ask the question, what else in your life do you feel you can enjoy and appreciate if you have only a fragmentary knowledge of it without any context? Mm. What is that? Yeah. You know, I, I hate to be sort of blunt, but I, I don't know. Maybe my middle name's blunt. You should. <laughs> but it, it's like, look, you know, you're a professing Christian. You claim to believe that this thing, either on your screen or on your lap, is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I would suggest it's high time to understand how God put it together, the intelligence with which it is made, and take it on its own terms because. God stepped into history to produce this thing, not in the 20th century or the 21st century, but in the second, first millennium BC and the first century AD to understand it. And you should, if you really believe that it's the word of God, Mm -hmm. you need to start letting it be what it is and getting the Israelite first century Jew in your head. The four letter word for that is work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I I, I know it's hard, (laughs) but the good news is that you have, 10, 15, 20 times the resources oh gosh. that people like Luther and Calvin just didn't have them. And, and the church, they just didn't have them. Mm-mm. You know, and I'm not sitting here saying I'm as smart as Calvin or Luther or Gus. I'm not. Okay. That's an easy call. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not writing the institutes when I'm 29. Yeah, you know, right. I'm collecting yeah, right. baseball cards <laughs> or something. You know, yeah. I, I'm not doing that. But what I have that they don't is I have all this material that we can access now in English translation that helps us think like these people and understand what they read. And if we read it and think about it and process it, we will become by definition more careful, intelligent readers of scripture. And the payoff for that is scripture's intelligence and its interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. It is not random. Yep. You know, the ultimate story is God wants a family. He wants partners There's a symbiotic relationship between the seen and the unseen realm. And that is how the meta narrative is propelled. Mm. There are two sides of it all the time. And we need to start thinking about that. I think too, to just see how Yahweh is bringing those together. And that's why I think I, I love the way that the scripture ends in Revelation. We were created to be, God's intention was that we would be fit for sacred space. Yep. Good. And, and this is where it's going. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. There's this throwaway line. Paul is going after the Corinthians again, okay? <laughs> they can't seem to do anything right. And he says, look, will you stop taking each other to court and going th- to, in front of secular you know, judges? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Yeah. And, and you look at that and you go, what? Did he just like take drugs or something? Like, what What is that? What the heck does that well, mean? <laughs> right. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I'll right. tell you what it means. It reflects a worldview 
that the earth is under dominion Mm -hmm. of hostile gods. It's the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Yes, their authority has been stripped away, giving Paul the authority to go preach the gospel to the Gentile. But they're not leaving. They're digging in. Mm -hmm. But at some point, as Revelation 2 and 3 say, to him that overcomes, I will set him over the nations. I I will let him sit on my throne and rule the nations with the rod of iron. Who who rules the nations now? It's these guys. It's the angels. And Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge them? You're going to replace them. You are Mm -hmm. going to displace and replace them. And humanity will become the reconstituted council of heaven, the family partners with God Mm. as they were originally intended to be fit for sacred space. This is why the story ends the way it began, except it's global. Yeah. I mean, that'll preach, you know, know, it is, but, but you get that from one line, Mm. understanding the bigger picture. Yeah. Otherwise, you just read it and go, well, I guess I'll keep reading. Yeah. Yeah. You scratch <laughs> you know, your head and you're like, eh, crazy I'll hit people. something I understand. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, yeah. you know, like don't, don't go to court to take somebody's money or, you know, yeah. and, that, and that's good. That's good. But there's, there's lots of these lines in scripture that honestly, you know, it's hard to know what to do with them. Yeah. You just, you have to have the context in your head, the, the bigger picture. Well, and, the, and we have to let the authors live in their world and think the way that they think. I mean, they're they're totally riffing off of their culture script. And, yep. and so I think just to end our time to, uh, I love that this uh, imagery in Revelation 21 and 22, where this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and new earth, where the dividing line between the seen and the unseen is gone, right? And Mm -hmm. God lives here among his people. There is no temple. There is no longer any sea. It's just uh, Mm -hmm. that imagery is so And that's an awesome, what a phrase that is. Gosh. Yeah, sea being the kind of archetype of everything that's chaotic, the abyss where death and dysfunction abides. Well, there's no more dolphins. There's no more salt water. (laughs) Yeah, no. No, it's a little bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, no, he's saying, hey, all challenges to my rule have been dealt with and eradicated. Mm -hmm. And like you said, there has been this reconstituted council made up of images that have been reanimated by my spirit and they're actually have joined into the divine life. That's just it's Hebrews yeah, too. It's so epic, man. So Jesus introduces us to God and God to yeah. us. Where does he do that? Hebrews too? Yeah. In the congregation. Yeah. You know, in the council. Yeah. Oh my God. There it is. Hidden in plain sight. There it is. It, Again. Well, dude, it's been so fun to talk to you. <laughs> I mean, I like, I know we've been talking for a little while, but, but, uh, it feels like just a few minutes. So Mike, thanks for your time, man. We, I really yep. appreciate it. Well, it's always fun to talk about biblical theology. <laughs> Nerd out a little bit on all this, but I yeah, think too, guys, uh, just for the stuff. audience, um, please, please, uh, if you feel confident, then I would say go pick up the unseen realm for sure. If you're like, ah, you, the, a lot of this has gone over my head then he's actually written a an abridged version called yep. Supernatural that's a lot more lay accessible to all of this stuff it's a it's a great introduction to the unseen realm 
And so you can also pick that up. Uh, you can get them both on whatever, you know, retailer you go to or Amazon or, or whatever you want to do. So if you have a, a new believer friend or are a new believer, you can even start at, with what does God want? That prepares people for supernatural. Yep. Supernatural prepares people for unseen Perfect. realm. So yeah, if you're a beginner in all this, pick up what does God want or supernatural or the unseen realm. This has been super helpful. So we're really grateful. We're grateful that God providentially pushed on you back in the day with your buddy telling you to read Psalm 82. And yeah. and uh, man, we're just going to pray that God continues to bless your ministry and and that more of you guys will take advantage of the fact that you are an English speaker in the 21st century with access to ridiculous amounts of information. So go take advantage of it and do the best that you can to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who accurately handles the word of truth. Somebody who can think like an ancient Israelite or a first century Jew. So, hey, we hope this has been helpful for you. Catch us next time on the Equipping Podcast. I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you like what you heard, then go on iTunes and leave us a comment, leave us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe, all of that awesome stuff. And shoot Karen an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. She loves getting email. Peace. <laughs> Peace. No, I said it first this time. No, no it's not your line. Bye. It's not your line. I Peace. stole it. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you just said bye. Bye. <laughs>